All right, so I'm in a seven-week series right now called Dark Friday. And one thing that hit me a few months ago, probably six months ago, um, is that I realized a lot of my preaching is resurrection and hope, and for good reason, because the pages of the Bible, pages of the New Testament are full of resurrection. But I have not spent as much time talking about the cross. And though the word cross isn't used a lot in the New Testament, images to the cross or crucifixion or how Jesus suffered, uh, it shows up a lot throughout the New Testament. And if, this is, if the cross is something we wear on a necklace or uh, earrings or tattoo on our bodies or hang in our homes, then I want, us to, I want us to think deeply about what the cross means and have a theology of the cross. And some of the things I've tried to do on a lot of these Sundays is push you to think about the cross beyond just atonement theory. That atonement had happened. Jesus stepped in and took what was ours, but what has happened on the cross is more than just atonement. This was cosmic. Jesus changed the course of history. What I'm going to preach next week from Colossians 2 on Easter Sunday is that through the cross, Jesus has dismantled the powers of darkness. So the cross is good news for the entire world. Uh, and I woke up this morning driving here knowing, man, I'm about to preach on the cross and what Jesus says from the cross. And my heart was just full of so much gratitude for how glorious Jesus is how amazing he is, how beautiful he is, how um, that Jesus was so determined to bring salvation to the world. There was nothing that could stop him. I, I sat at lunch uh, a few weeks ago. There's this young man in uh, early 20s, and he, did not, he wasn't raised in the church, hadn't heard the gospel until he was around 18 years old. And when he heard the gospel and responded to the love of Jesus and the cross of Jesus, he thought to himself, if this is a man who is willing to die for me so that I could experience life, I'm willing to die for him. And he like took this seriously. So he began going on these mission trips around the world, which he ended up going to some places where the, some countries where Christianity is outlawed, where it's not allowed. And if you are found to be Christian, you may die. And he was in this cafe in this country. And as he's in this cafe, he's laboring before the Lord in prayer for hours, asking God to use him to speak words of Christ and to people who don't know Christ. And after hours of laboring, he felt as if God gave him this picture, this image of a man walking by in a red sweater. This may sound weird for some of you, but let me also encourage you that when we take time to labor before the Lord for extended periods of time, surrendering ourselves before God, asking God to use us, God begins doing stuff like this. He's asking God, and then he began praying, okay, if there's a man in a red sweater, what am I supposed to do with it? He labored in prayer for a few more hours, and guess who walked by this cafe? It's a man in a red sweater. So he started following him. And he followed this man, and this man in a red sweater walked into a mosque, and he walked in after him. Now, I know Christians in Memphis who, in an attempt to build relationships with Muslims, they have gone into mosques too, not to worship Allah, but with this commitment that if I'm going to call you into my world, I need to enter into your world too. And to go in and to engage in fellowship. And, and many people I've talked to, when they've entered into places of worship with Muslims or these houses of fellowship for Muslims, they've walked in and there's been this presence of hospitality and graciousness where this guy followed the man with the red sweater was not like that. He walked in and was asking God, what am I supposed to do? And fellowship began to break out and he began to witness to the greatness of Jesus. And he better be glad, well, I say he better be glad he wasn't killed. Uh, and they kicked him out of the mosque. 
And as they kicked him out, he began walking away and he heard someone call after him. And it was the man in the red sweater. And they went and they sat down for lunch at a different cafe. And this young man opened up scripture and began talking to this other man in the red sweater about the goodness and greatness of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and what Jesus has done. And he led this guy to become a believer in Jesus. And his whole thinking was, if there's someone who is willing to die for me, I'm willing to die for him in an attempt to let his name be known all around the world. There's greatness in the name of Jesus, power in the name of Jesus. So this morning, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the triumphal entry, but around the world today, in Christian settings, it's Palm Sunday. There are people who are talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus, where Jesus is on a colt coming into Jerusalem. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are known as the four Gospels. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell stories of Jesus, but they tell them in different ways. In fact, there are very few times when all four of them tell the same story in all their gospels. And I love the way all of them tell their story because the Holy Spirit's working through them, but there's also personality coming out in each of them. But one thing they do agree on is that they agree that Jesus is the one that the whole story is pointing to. He's the hero. He's it. One thing they all agree on is that Jesus is the one we have to say yes to. We do not say yes to heaven, though heaven's great. We say yes to Jesus. We do not say yes to baptism, though baptism is vitally important, we say yes to Jesus. We do not say yes to confession, we say yes to Jesus. We don't say yes to the church, we say yes to Jesus. Jesus is the one we say yes to. He's the one that we declare allegiance to. It's all in him. And all the gospel writers are pointing to the greatness of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only miracle all four of them tell in the public ministry of Jesus is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. They all agree about Jesus dying on a cross, and they spend a lot of time talking about that, and they talk to, all of them talk about the resurrection. You, you won't find another story that all four of them tell, except the story of the triumphal entry. They all tell the story about a few days before Jesus dies. He comes into Jerusalem, and he's riding on this donkey. And they all tell this story. And Matthew tells the story, and Jesus is on the donkey, and he's coming into Jerusalem. And the way Matthew tells the story is Jesus doesn't say anything. They're walking in. He's riding in. And there are all these people, and there's great anticipation in the crowd. They're excited because they think the king is coming, the new Messiah, and they're laying palm branches down. They're taking robes off, and they're laying them down. There's this great anticipation for the king to come and to set everything right. One thing I'm concerned about in Christianity today, especially in the Western world and in, in, in America, is that much of us have embraced a Christianity where there is not much anticipation about the movement of God today. We study the Bible, we study the New Testament, we form Bible study groups or we study it, we look at the Greek, we parse it, we want to see what it says and the context it was in, yet sometimes we don't allow it to translate that the same God who did things 2,000 years ago is the same God who still does stuff today. And, and there's this anticipation that seems to be lost. Sometimes people come to me and they're like, I'm not getting anything out of church. I'm not getting anything out of my Bible study. I'm not getting much out of other worship services I go to. And I ask, do you enter into it anticipating the movement of God? Are you anticipating God doing anything? And here's Jesus riding in on a donkey. And there's great anticipation that Jesus is coming in. And he's going to set everything right. 
So Matthew tells the story. Jesus comes in, but at no point does Jesus take a time out or pause or hush the crowd to speak or preach or explain to them what is happening. Jesus is silent. Mark tells the story of the triumphal entry. Jesus rides in, and at no point does Jesus speak a word or hush the crowd or preach or teach or explain what's happening. John tells the story. Same thing. Nothing. Luke tells the story, and as Luke tells the story, Jesus does say something, but it's in response to religious leaders, and who these religious leaders are yelling at Jesus, and they're like, hey, tell all these people to hush, because they're out of their minds worshiping you, and Jesus' response was, the only thing he spoke in the triumphal entry was this, if they are silent, the rocks are going to cry out. The only thing Jesus says is, hey, if they're quiet, something's going to give God glory today. And there's been very few call to worships in my life that have uh, ushered me into the presence of God more, has prepared me for church and worship more than this story. The reality is that God wants my praise for him today, but if I don't give it, something's going to give it. It could be rocks, trees, grass, mountains. Something's going to give God glory today, and God is inviting humans to be a part of that. Jesus doesn't say much. Jesus rides in on a donkey, and then what you read in Luke 19, 41, is Jesus gets off of the donkey, and he weeps. The coming king that they were anticipating to come and set everything right weeps over Jerusalem. Kings didn't do this kind of stuff. They didn't ride some victory parade and then cry. And you don't see Jesus getting off the donkey and going to a private place to weep. Now, he... It's like public where Jesus begins to weep over the brokenness of the city. And you know this. You know that Jesus came. And he's not the kind of king people were expecting. He was a different kind of king. That he wasn't coming into Jerusalem to set up an earthly kingdom. He was coming into Jerusalem to set up the kingdom of God. He wasn't coming in demanding for someone to put a purple robe on him. He came in and wrapped himself in a towel and began to wash the feet of sinners. He didn't come in to wipe out all the evil people in Jerusalem. He came in to weep over the brokenness in Jerusalem. He's a different kind of king. It was the people who used to ask for a king. God said in the Old Testament, I want to be your king. Like, just let me be your leader. And it's the people who are like, no, we want, we want an earthly king like those other countries. So God gave it to them. How did that work out for them, right? I think most of us, like, we're okay with kings and leaders until they turn out to be kings and leaders we don't want. Right? You're fine with kings and leaders until a king or a leader is put in place that you don't like or that you didn't vote for. And as Jesus came into Jerusalem and he began to weep, and Jesus ends up hanging on a cross. There are people who were putting all of their eggs in the basket of Jesus who now are thinking, this is not the kind of king we've been anticipating. This isn't the kind of king we want. Yet Jesus was so committed to his mission. In John 12, and John has these images of Jesus praying and placing himself before God. And here's one thing Jesus says. He knows he's about to die. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But then he says, no, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Jesus, he, he knew what his mission was. He knew what the will of God is. He knew what his place in this was. So from the cross, and here's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning, and I want this to bless you. I want this to give you permission to lay yourself before God and to express certain emotions before God. From the cross, Jesus says seven different things. Sometimes it's just one word. Sometimes it's phrases. 
Jesus doesn't speak a lot from the cross, but he does seven times. And most, most of them are forms of prayer. And I want this to be something for, I want to convince you today that the seven things Jesus says from the cross is not just for us to admire, it's for us to pray to, it's for us to learn from him and to learn how to express ourselves to God and to other people the same way Jesus does. Here's the reality, okay? That the words that flow from us in a moment of crisis reveal the character of our heart. The words that flow from us in moments of stress reveal the character of our hearts. Now, let me give you, <laughs> some words have, fl have flowed out of some of you in moments of stress over the last 48 hours that did not reveal the character of God in your heart. Can I get a witness in the room somewhere? But for the most part, the words that flow from us in moments of crisis, in moments of stress, reveal the character of our hearts. It reveals what has been ingrained inside of us. And I think this is where it's so helpful for us to remember and to, and, and to realize that Jesus, the Bible says stuff like Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. The Bible says Jesus grew up, like he matured. So th this whole thing about Jesus being fully God and fully human, it's not like this switch that Jesus turned off and on. But Jesus had leaders who taught him the ways of God, who introduced him to Scripture, who taught him maturity and character. So it's not like Jesus entered into moments of stress or crisis or was about to die, and then he could channel what it meant to be fully God so he didn't give in to evil. Jesus had character that was formed inside of him. And this is why I spend a lot of time, when I travel and I speak to younger people, to college students, to teenagers, I spend time teaching them and trying to challenge them to form some deep roots in their lives right now because I don't want them to wait until the storms of life hit for them to sit back and think about what is most important in their lives. Like how can we be establishing our roots now, preparing us for whatever season comes? Uh, I think it was three weeks ago. I was flying back late on a Saturday night, coming back here to preach on a Sunday morning. And I'm in this plane, and we get about an hour outside of Memphis. And I'm sitting by the window, and I'm looking out, and I, I see this lightning storm. But this was different than most lightning storms I've seen from airplanes before. A lot of times I see, I, I'm in the plane, and I'm looking out the window, and I see a lightning storm happening way over there. And you can see the lightning from the cloud in what seems like all the way to the ground, and it's beautiful. But this time, I was over the lightning storm. So I'm looking down on a cloud, this thunderstorm, and I'm seeing lightning, but I'm not seeing lightning from the cloud to the ground. I'm just seeing these bursts of light, and it was glorious. And I know lightning is destructive, and it can do bad things. Uh, so, uh, but somehow I was just like uh, ushered into the, the greatness and the beauty and the majesty of God as I watched this. I tried to take pictures of it with my phone, but those windows on planes are a little too thick for us to get good pictures of what's happening outside in the dark, all right? Uh, and, and, and I'm watching this. I, I've never seen anything like it before. And then it hit me. There's a reason that pilot came on a few minutes ago, and that pilot said, I want to ask the flight attendants to discontinue serving and go ahead and take your seats for the rest of the flight. And there's a reason the pilot said, I'm going to ask for everyone for the remainder of the flight. We have about 40 minutes left to remain in your seats. No one goes to the restroom. Keep your seat buckled. 
There's a reason that Pilate said, can you grab the hand of the person closest to you and bow your heads in a word of prayer for safety as we land? Because then it hit me, if we are over this huge thunderstorm, somehow we got to get from here down there. And surely they're not going to go through the heart of the thunderstorm. But there were clouds everywhere. Somehow we've got to get from here to there. And now I'm fully trusting that these pilots know what they are doing and how they are doing it to get us from here to there. Some of you are in that place in your lives right now where maybe you're not looking down upon a thunderstorm. You are in it wondering, how are you ever going to land safely? How are you going to get through this? Is there a God who can land me safely on this side of life, not on the other so what is this like? So, so here's Jesus in a moment of crisis. He's on the cross. He's dying and there are seven things that flow from him. And I want these to bless you today. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. All right. And, and it's hard to even know in chronological order how these flow because none, none of the gospel writers have all seven in their same gospels. Matthew and Mark only have one statement from Jesus on the cross. Luke has three. John has three. So here they are. There, there's this cry of despair from Jesus on the cross. And the despair is the moment when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus is taking this plunge into sin and evil. I want you to think about this. When it came to taking out evil in the world, Jesus did not throw some divine grenade into the evil to blow it up. It's not like Jesus had a weapon and began throwing his weapons into evil. Jesus took himself into evil. He took this plunge into it to take it on head on, to absorb all the sin that should be upon us. He took it upon himself. And when Jesus entered into the very center of evil, he knew there was the separation from his own father, from his God that took place. And it's not just this. Jesus is drawing from a psalm. Jesus prayed the psalms. Jews prayed the psalms. I've talked to some of you. Your spiritual lives have been taken to a whole nother level because of your commitment to praying the psalms. And here's Jesus who's drawing from Psalm 22, where Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's how that psalm begins. So Jesus is drawing from this song that he used to sing as a kid. But it's the same psalm that later on in 23 and verse 23 and 24 talks about how God hears the cries of people. That God is not blind to what his people endure. And if Jesus is going to be in a moment of crisis and cry out something like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is there separation? This is something we can pray to. From the cross, Jesus prays forgiveness. And what Jesus says is, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And we don't know who that prayer is directed at. It could be directed toward a lot of people, right? The people who had placed him on the cross, the people who had, uh, they, they were uh, bearing false witness against him leading up to the cross, the disciples, you and me. There's a lot of things Jesus could have been covering with that. But for him on the cross to think about forgiveness, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Now, for some people, we look at this and we also want justice to be done. There's forgiveness, but there also needs to be justice. But think about this. Jesus is going to offer forgiveness to a thief right next to him, but that thief still had to die. There was still a punishment for him. What Jesus does do here, it's not that he says justice doesn't matter anymore. We're just going to throw out forgiveness. It's for, you are forgiven 
we are forgiven. Jesus is going to lean and bend towards compassion and mercy and ask you to do the same. And we'll trust God to work out all the justice. He's going to give forgiveness. The Amish community blows me away with this. I know I've talked about this before. That a few years ago when there was the milk truck driver who drove into that Amish community, I believe in Pennsylvania, and opened fire in that schoolroom, killing I think seven or eight girls. Within 24 hours, the headlines of the news shifted from a person who went in and committed seven or eight murders. It shifted from that to a story of forgiveness. And people were going into this Amish community, and they were asking leaders in the community and mothers and fathers and grandparents, how are you forgiving so easily? And do you remember what their response was? It was this. It sounds so simple. The first time I heard it, I was like, that is so simple. And their response was, because Jesus teaches us to. That was it. Now, the Amish take seriously the Lord's Prayer of Father, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But the Lord's Prayer ends with your kingdom come uh, um, on, uh, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And right after that is, if you forgive others, you will be forgiven. But if you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. And the Amish take that seriously. How could they forgive so easy? Because at a young age, they're taught how Jesus did it. That Jesus is on a cross, dying, and he takes time to offer and to think about forgiveness. I'm not trying to make forgiveness out to sound like something that's easy. But if Jesus models it, he's going to give us the strength to do it too. There's despair, there's forgiveness, then there's redemption. And there's redemption when Jesus is surrounded by these thieves. And there's a thief that says, Jesus, or he calls out to Jesus. And he says, remember me, uh, remember me. And Jesus' response is, today you will be with me in paradise. He offers something to this thief. Now, occasionally people come up to me, especially in times of when death is close or when tragedy is hit in some kind of way. And a lot of times they say, Josh, what is on the other side? What's on the other side? What is waiting for us on the other side? And look, I've read the Bible. I've read the New Testament hundreds of times. I've studied every book in the New Testament. I, couldn't memor I haven't memorized it. I can't quote it word for word, but I've studied it. And I've read it over and over. And it's hard for me to answer this question to tell people exactly what is on the other side. Because I don't know if the moment you die, you are automatically transported into the presence of Jesus. I don't know if the moment we die, we enter into this state of peaceful bliss until the day Jesus comes back. And remember, when we die, we're outside of time now. So even if that's how God chose to do it, it's not like you're going to wake up and you're cramped up because you've been resting for so long. It's not how it is, all right? Uh, what I do know is this, that when we die, those of us who are in Christ, when we die, evil cannot touch us anymore. It can't touch us. It has no rain on our lives. It cannot affect us. What I know is this, is that when we die, I believe there is another side, and I believe somehow, some way, Jesus and his glory and his greatness is there. And that excites me, and that's good news. He offers redemption. There's also unquestioning trust of all seven of these statements from Jesus. This is the one that has probably blessed me the most over the last few days. And Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is not Jesus giving up in this moment. He is totally entering into a moment. This is the moment when Jesus knows I'm about to die. My heart's going to stop. Blood's not flowing. Brain waves aren't working anymore. I'm dying. And here is the moment when I am 110%. Everything I am trusting that God is who God said he is. 
that I, I'm dying, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm fully trusting that God can bring me back from the dead. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. But here's where I want this to bless you today. This is not just a prayer we pray on our deathbeds. This isn't just a prayer with one of our last breaths of, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This is a prayer believers need to be praying every single day when we wake up. Father, into your hands today, I commit everything I am. I commit my spirit, my schedule, my agenda, my dreams. God, into your hands, I commit all of these. Because a lot of times what we do is this. God, here, I, I commit these things to you, but I'm going to hang on to these things. And how's that working out for you, right? Father, into your hands, I commit everything I have. There's community Jesus offers. And this is that moment when he sees his mother Mary, and he also sees John. And what he says is, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple John, he says, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Grief does stuff like this, right? Usually when I hear people say, where would people be without the church? It is in moments of death or crisis. That it's in that moment that we realize, man, where would we be without the church family? And here's Jesus creating community, offering affections, knowing the joy of community, and he creates it right there in a moment. The sixth statement from Jesus in John 19, 28 is about honest expression. And this is where Jesus says, I'm thirsty. This is the only time on the cross where Jesus expresses some form of agony or physical pain. And he says he's thirsty. Now, there are a couple of gospel writers that say that wine was offered to Jesus and he refused to take it. Now, here's where I think this is important, okay? Uh, I, I do not think you can read the Bible and come out with a conclusion that drinking alcohol is a sin. But I also don't think you can read the Bible and come to the conclusion that drunkenness is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin, but I don't think you agree with the Bible and, don't, and come to a conclusion that, that drinking is not a sin. But here's where Jesus needs to be a blessing for some of you in this moment. In a moment when Jesus could have used a numbing agent. In a moment when Jesus could have taken a divine epidural to ease the pain. He denied it. And for a lot of us, the moment we are reaching for something to numb the pain in our lives, if Jesus modeled that in these moments, I'm going to trust in God and not on a substance we need to follow Jesus in the same kind of way. The last statement from Jesus on the cross, on John 19, 30. He says, it is finished. In your Bibles, it's three words. In the Greek, it's one. This is not Jesus saying, that's a wrap. This is not Jesus saying, I am finished. It's Jesus saying, it is finished. This was a statement of victory. That it is now accomplished. That there are no, there's no box that has not been checked. That what God has set out to do in and through Jesus has now been accomplished for the entire world. So the work of God to bring salvation to the world is now complete. And I think in this moment there was rejoicing in heaven because maybe they thought up until that moment that, God, that Jesus was going to lose. But in that moment they realized Jesus didn't lose. God has accomplished. He has set out to win a victory. And now he has. And here's how, here's how we respond. Every Christian has to die at least twice. You die when our bodies die, but we know that isn't the death that has the final victory over our lives. 
But then there's also a death when we are surrendering our lives to Jesus and we're confessing him as the Lord of our lives and we're being baptized. There is a death. The Bible does not explain this. It's like you were sick and you need some medicine to heal you. The Bible talks about this as you are dead and you need someone to completely revive and save you. You're not just sick with a cut and need a holy band-aid. You were dead and you're in need of Jesus to revive you. But then Jesus takes it a step further where Jesus says, if you want to be my followers, you must deny yourselves and take up your cross daily and follow me. In his day, you could take up a cross one time. You took a cross up a hill. You were nailed to it. You died. Nobody came down from a cross to talk about their experiences up on a cross. And Jesus says, I need you to die every day. This is often the verse I read when I perform weddings for Christians. Is the greatest gift you can give to people around you is to commit to denying yourself and laying yourself down so the people around you can experience a life of God. So how are you going to respond this week to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus? I want to ask elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go to the places where you are stationed throughout this room to receive people for prayer. And if there's a need in this room, a cry to God, you want to voice this to the, to the uh, church here, come up front and there'll be elders to receive you. We also have four whiteboards on tables, two up front and two in the middle. And we've invited you for a few weeks just to go and just answer the question, respond to the question of what does the cross mean to me? You can leave words, phrases, pictures. We're, we invite you to come and, and write one of those on one of those boards. Can we stand together as a church? And we're going to sing a song. So let's sing this as a declaration.